Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. We've got something a little different in store for you this week. I was in Portland last week talking to Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons, the two guys behind the Slow Burn podcast, which I'm sure a lot of you have listened to. It's a Slate podcast. The first season was about Watergate and Richard Nixon. The second season was about Bill Clinton and the Lewinsky scandal. And uh, it's a fascinating podcast. If you haven't listened to it, it's eight episodes. It goes into a bunch of things about the 90s that I certainly didn't know about that I think a lot of people don't know about. They talked to some incredible, incredibly interesting people for this show. Uh, there's an interview with Juanita Broderick. There's an interview with Linda Tripp. They did an incredible amount of research, and they produced this just amazing eight-episode narrative podcast. So I was in Portland with them doing an event, and we were at a you know, auditorium somewhere in Portland. I do not know Portland well, but it's a lovely city. And so what we are going to play for you is a portion of that event with me talking to them about how they created this podcast, what it's like to try and put something like this together. It's so different from a lot of the podcasts Slate runs, um, certainly very different than this podcast. And also just talk to them about how they look back at the 90s now, what they think about the Clinton scandal, what it was like talking to Juanita Broderick, all this stuff. So give a listen. I think it's really interesting. And we will see you next week with new content about the election results. We are going to come back um, a day or so after the election and do a complete rundown of everything that happened. And uh, so come back then. Thank you. So... I think people here have probably seen movies or read books or seen TV shows about how news articles come about, about how journalism, uh, written journalism comes about. But I don't think we've seen or heard a lot about how podcasts are made, which is what I'm interested in tonight. So first question for you guys, and you can choose how to answer it, is once you have an idea for Slow Burn Season 2, you've already done Season 1, how do you put this thing together? How does it start? Got to read a book. Uh, or a lot of books. Yeah, well, I, but, but you got to start with one, right? And so I think as, with season one and two, we both um, sort of went into our separate corners and read like a well-chosen like omnibus version of the story. Like whether, I think I think maybe it was Tubin's book that we read first, or maybe it was the Ken Gormley book, The Death of American Virtue. Just one, a book that like tells the whole story from beginning to end that we can then sort of start slotting into an outline where, you know, I think we decided, as I alluded to earlier, we decided for some reason that we were going to do eight episodes, uh, not less and not more. And then the challenge was sort of figuring out a way to divide up the timeline uh, in a way that made sense and also kind of created opportunities for uh, cliffhangers and opening scenes. Um, and, and that was the first move. To sort yeah, of and like choose to sit on their shoulders and watch all of these events go by that could be sort of slotted into each. Uh, each episode. Yeah. So how do you divide up the work, though? (laughs) The work? Pretty naturally, I would say. I mean, we have just different skill sets and and different responsibilities in the show. Um, I would say that early stage, like, we're both kind of doing very similar sort of reading and workshopping and uh, sort of figuring out what that outline uh, will be. Um, And Leon's probably doing a little bit more of that while I'm at the same time digging into the archive and trying to find as uh, as many archive sources as possible. And as the season goes on, I think the the shape of each individual episode falls a lot more to Leon because the production is picking up on my end and just like piecing together the episodes, scoring them, doing the sound design. Uh, we 
Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that one thing Andrew does early in the process with each episode is create uh, what's called a cut sheet, which is just basically a uh, a catalog of all the archival footage that he has found, you know, at the Library of Congress on the C-SPAN uh, website, uh, it, you know, in the NBC News. Uh, uh, what do you call them? Reels? No. Uh, the screeners. The screeners. They, they yeah. will ask for a bunch of just like raw material from you know specific dates and like, do you have? Give us everything James Carville said. You know, in these six months, that was like crazy about Ken Starr, just so we could sift through it. Yeah. And, and and so then, do you write a script or do you write like something that we would recognize as a piece of long form journalism, and then you're reading it on the air? How does that work? Yeah. So it's a script, but it's funny because we do post we do we do post transcripts now, um, and I'm and I'm curious whether anyone has read the transcripts and hasn't heard the show and what that experience is like. But but no, I mean it's 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 a different kind of piece of it's a different genre of writing, obviously. And so I had to learn when I started doing season one how to write a script. And I remember very distinctly the moment when I uh, started writing the Martha episode. And I turned to my wife after like a couple of you know hours or days, and I was like, I, I, I don't know why I thought I knew how to do this. Like I've been in print journalism for ten years, but I, I, I have no idea what this is supposed to sound like. And I thought maybe like the move would be to just kind of sketch out uh, little movements or sections and then just go into the studio and kind of extemporaneously um, kind of pretend like I was just telling a story to my friend at a bar. Uh, and that really didn't work. Man, it really sounded uh, like I was talking to myself, uh, but alone at a bar. To be um, fair, to be fair, I did give you a lot of sample scripts and like... Uh, and <laughs> A lot of the initial ones that came back, uh, you would sort of put like a big chunk of like what just writing in um, audio from interviews we did and things like that, that, you know, you thought would sound good and be like three minutes of Bob Woodward talking (laughs) and then like one line from Leon. So I think there was like a lot of give and take on sort of the, the craft of writing in and out. And I will say for the Martha episode... The interesting thing about producing that versus the uh, in the first season versus the way we do it now is with the Martha episode, most of the archive was just me trying to figure out where I could weave it in and out after Leon has sort of, had sort of read the script because there were basically no interviews in that episode. Um, and now there is still some of that. There's still sort of like taking a, uh, a large portion that Leon read and sort of breaking it up and seeing what I can weave in and out. But there is a lot more of Leon finding that oppor- those opportunities for himself as he's writing. One of my favorite parts of the process is uh, getting the rough cut of an episode for the first time and hearing all of these gems that Andrew has found that I actually haven't heard yet and hearing them in context is, such a, is just such a really un... un uh, unforgettable feeling. The other thing that was interesting, which you were talking about backstage was that you were airing the early episodes before you'd finished the later episodes. And Uh I'm wondering you're getting feedback, you're hearing from people that's different than when you publish a piece, obviously. So what was that like? And did that change how you did it in any way? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely kind of ratcheted up the pressure. Certainly. Uh, I mean, if only because, you know, we took our, I think for, for season one, we had three months before between when we started researching and when, episode one came out. Uh, and for season two, we had five months between when we started researching and when episode one came out. Uh, and then, you know, you tack on the two months during which the eight episodes are coming out. And those two months are intense because uh, we're not done <laughs> with those episodes. And you got to finish them because they got to come out on a schedule. Um, and so, yeah, of course, like we're like reading Twitter and all that. And so it's hard to, in my mind, separate out what is a decision I make 
based on Twitter. <laughs> um, hopefully there's not too many of those. But, you know, I'll give you one example. Like with episode eight of season two, uh, we had decided to make it about uh, Juanita Broderick and her the role that her story played in the impeachment proceedings before the Kavanaugh stuff happened. And it was like in the middle of that process that that accusation surf- was surfaced. And suddenly we start seeing the, the sort of parallel story unfold on the, in the news. And we didn't have to change a whole lot to sort of emphasize the parallels or, 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 or draw attention to them. Um, they kind of were just there. Uh, but I definitely thought about it. Uh, and, you know, again, that's not, that's not exactly re- responding to feedback, but it is responding to the world as it happens. And, uh, and the one thing that uh, was really nice, at least, I don't know if this happened in season two, but in season one, we were able to put some of the Slate Plus material uh, was fed from uh, people that gave us feedback, like that family that scrapbooked Watergate. Oh, yeah. Um, that, was the, that like you brought in for I think that was the plus for what seven or eight. Yeah, so there was so I, I was at a party and I was talking to the, this friend of a friend who I'd never met before, and she said, "Oh, you know, I, I think I told her about the show." And she, exciting party companion you are, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she said, "Oh, you know, I, my 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 parents were obsessed with, uh, or my my dad was upset, and my dad and his and his siblings were obsessed with the Watergate hearings." And um, she showed me on her phone these like uh, photographs of, of these scrapbooks that, the, that their family had made. And so I was like, you got to give me their contact information. And so we got them into the studio and interviewed them about it. Um, and actually, I didn't tell you this. She emailed me recently and was like, listen, I'm, the season was already over, unfortunately. And she was like, listen, I'm so sorry. I wish I could have I wish I had thought of this earlier while you were still working on this. But my older sister wrote this amazing essay when she was in second grade about Monica Lewinsky. Uh, and it was truly... I, my, I, I experienced pangs of, of, of regret that I couldn't uh, do a mirror uh, plus episode where I talked to her sister about the, the Lewinsky scandal. What was one challenge or difference between this season and the Nixon Watergate season? The first would be access to the Clinton world. Um, like with Watergate, it's pretty much, you know, set history. I think that the only uh, people that are pretty vocal about uh, protecting Nixon are like Pat Buchanan and... Uh, Maybe that's it. Um, <laughs> but uh, with with the the Clintons, there are a lot of characters in the story that uh, Donna Shalala, for example, who was uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, who we had, uh, we were able to get some uh, oral history of her, but she's running for Congress and isn't going to like have us sit down with us and, and give us a lot of uh, information. So that'd be the number one. And then number two is that the the ending, we right away saw that there wasn't, really a good resolution. Like, Nixon stepped down, and we saw that it could potentially be anticlimactic if we didn't yeah. take a, a different approach to episode eight. Yeah. The Shalala thing, just real quick, is, is I find it quite funny that what happened was we asked for interviews with certain people, and they either didn't get back to us or said no, and then we discovered this oral history that someone at the Miller Center had made, and we emailed them, and we're like, hey, do you guys by any chance have the recordings of this? Because they had published the, the transcripts. So they, we asked them if they had the recordings. And they're like, oh, sure. Like, what do, you, what do you need? And so we were able to use them, even though the people themselves didn't, uh, didn't agree to be interviewed. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about two interviews you did for this, one with Linda Tripp and one with Juanita Broderick. What you made of them um, from the interview, how they were different than maybe when you'd been researching them and come across them as historical figures, what, what those interviews were like? Well, uh, Linda Tripp uh, was a 
human being. That was like the most surprising. Like, I mean, it wasn't surprising. I know she's a human being, <laughs> but it was, it, it was in a way, it was jarring to sort of have this like uh, abstract figure who I had been carrying around in my head since I was a kid uh, in front of me. Uh, Andrew was there too. Like, yeah. you know, we were in her house. Like we're, we're, we're like eating sandwiches that she made for us. Um, it, was, it was surreal. It was frankly surreal. And especially because she's also, she, she also looks super different than she did back then. And so mm-hmm. in a way there was this sort of, it, it did feel like she was a different person um, than the one I had been imagining. And what we had imagined and sort of what was, uh, you know, everywhere in 1998 was like a, a pretty huge villain that was vilified. And I think even in her most conspiratorial, even in her moments where like she's clearly an unreliable narrator and we, you know, clearly you're going to have to do more fact-checking, she still had a warmness to her that surprised me. It, it was very easy to like her, honestly. About Juanita Broderick, I, I just want to ask because I think we're, there's this weird thing going on now where at one level, Bill Clinton's flaws look uh, very small compared to what we're seeing every day uh, when we open up the newspaper. At the same time, I think a lot of people are re-examining aspects of Bill Clinton, uh, certainly a lot of people on the left, liberals, Democrats. So I'm, I'm curious uh, in that light what you made of speaking to Juanita Broderick. And I mean, I know you cover this extensively in the show, but just what you think of her accusations now, 20 years later, and how you think about the former president. I guess more than 20 years since what she says occurred, occurred, but... 78, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, as you say, I say this on the show, but it's, it's, it's hard to process because if you take her at her word, then it sort of overshadows everything else. You know, you can talk about gray areas, about, uh, but so much, so much of the story and so much of, I think, the way we approach the, the, the story in the show is, is about gray, area, gray areas. But, you know, a rape is a rape. I mean, it's like there's nothing to talk about. If that happened, then, like, what room is there to have any meaningful debate about anything? Uh, and so in that sense, like, I was scared of that story going going into the season. I, I knew about her allegations. I think not, I hadn't known about them very long. I think I learned about them during the 2016 election. I read about them uh, in a BuzzFeed story by, our, by my friend Katie Baker, who interviewed her. And her story was, uh, I think, headlined, Juanita Broderick Wants to be Believed. Um, and I just didn't know how we were going to deal with it, frankly. I just, you know, because you, you put it at the end, you're, you, you, you sort of end up, I mean, undermining is the wrong word, but you end up overshadowing everything else. Um, and so I, in a way, I was relieved to learn how intimately or inextricably, inextricable that, that her allegations were from the ending of the story that, we, that would have been sort of uh, natural, right? The impeachment process, the, the Senate trial, like the fact that those two things actually were together in in history. Like we didn't have to we didn't have to have a creative solution. We didn't have to cre- we didn't have to create. Uh, we didn't have to, we didn't have to shoehorn her allegations into the ending. Her allegations actually was part of the ending, uh, and so that was a great relief to me because I think it, it took a certain burden off of us. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the question sort of uh, I doesn't answer. It does ask like what whether you think is credible. Um, at least I think. I think it is a, a very credible story, at least with the um, contemporaneous uh, accounts and uh, verifications. I think there there were some stories that uh, that we've seen that try to uh, argue different theories other ways. Um, that, uh, but they're just as far as like genuine reporting goes, they're far less credible. Yeah. Um, and I think that 
if you take that at face value, then you just have to follow it to the uncomfortable conclusion, which is a gray area. It, it is, uh, as Leon said, something that's really hard to put together in your mind. Um, and it's, I think, as anticlimactic as just ending on an acquittal could be, it wasn't that it was anticlimactic, but it also didn't come to just this neat conclusion that you could yeah. sort of wrap a nice bow around. Yeah. And that's okay. What did you make of interviewing her? What did you come away with? Anything? Well, I mean, as, as I sort of allude to at the end of the episode, like her public persona at this point is quite caustic. Um, you know, if you look at her Twitter feed, she's railing against, you know, immigrants and saying that the children being separated from their parents at the border aren't really their children and who really knows. Uh, she says awful things on Twitter. Uh, and then you talk to her on the phone and she's this sweet lady who sounds like, you know, just a, a gentle, like warm person. And I, and I don't know, it's very hard to kind of wrap your mind around how that can be the same one individual. That was my experience of that interview. I was surprised to like her in the same, not in a very different way than I was surprised to like Linda Tripp, um, completely different situations. But, uh, yeah, it's just like the, the, the person who's writing those tweets, I couldn't, I couldn't hear her at all in, in how she spoke to me. We're in a stage now where there are seemingly giant scandals bigger than, maybe not bigger than Watergate, but bigger than Clinton Lewinsky um, every day, it seems like. I'm wondering if you think any of the scandals now would make a good slow burn episode and why or why not? Or are things kind of too big and too crazy? I, I'm not saying tomorrow we need to take some time, but <laughs> is there something about the Trump era that you think would do well in a, the framing of slow burn or, or you think we're in a different stage now and looking back to the past is the only way to do it? Well, I think looking back to the past is definitely, as far as what makes slow burn, slow burn, that's an element of it. Um, I, a, a previous history show I worked at, we used to say the past is a foreign country just because uh, the cultural mores, the gut reactions people have, the motivations behind what even average uh, people do are so different than, you know, 20 to 100 years in the future. Um, and I think that you definitely need would need some removal to uh, totally understand the Trump era. Um, I think there, Leon maybe has some specific suggestions. It seems like there are there's a never ending list of uh, events happening throughout the Trump era that would make a good episode. I think yeah. the hard part would be actually capturing it as a whole because I think you could zoom in on any one thing. It seems really strange and really bizarre, but I think the the number of them that sort of pass before us every day is actually what makes the there more bizarre. And I think that that is hard from a storytelling angle. Yeah. I mean, insofar as like part of the formula for slow burn is focusing on the peripheral characters, you know, and, and trying to kind of nibble around the edges of the, of the main narrative. Uh, everyone's a peripheral character in the story, except for him. Right. Uh, I referenced Scaramucci in episode one, season one, and sort of said that I was like, we're probably not going to remember this guy in, in, in 20 years. Uh, we barely remember him now. Um, they're all Scaramucci's, you know? Like, the, these are all going to be people who people will vaguely remember. Um, and I think, you know, for our, for our reunion tour in 20 years, like, we're going to have a lot to, we're going to have a lot to work with. So I will say that, like, I'm, I'm you can tell I'm not answering your question because I, I can't think of one thing because there, as Andrew said, there's so many. And I have this problem, I guess, like, where I, I just have a bad memory, um, and I always think to myself, oh, I should like, I should keep a journal. I should, you know, be writing down what's ha what I what I, what happens in my 
life. Uh, it makes life feel longer, and you know, I can read it later and remember. And I think with the news is the same thing. I mean, I, I think if I wanted to do a great job of doing a slow burn season on, on the Trump era, I would be taking notes like Peter Baker did, uh, bless him, uh, keeping a journal during during his reporting on Juanita Broderick that he was able to read to us. Um, and that happened like off the cuff, by the way. We had yeah. looped back to get him to describe a little bit more of the conversation he had on the phone with Juanita Broderick, uh, just because he sort of passed it by during the interview initially. And he paused and said, like, can, can you guys hold on a second? And he took out his laptop. And in just a few minutes, he like just had his journals from 1998, from 20 years before, just there to read to us. Which made into the episode, I think, uh, the most notable one was when he just said, like, oh, my God, oh, God, exclamation point. My God, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, that is that is what, like a good, that's a good primary source that yeah. I think. And uh, I, wish, I wish I was doing that now, and I'm not. And, 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 I, and I think, you know, if, I, if in 20 years I were to try to look back at the Trump era in the way that I looked back at Nixon and, and Clinton, like, I would have to do the research just like anyone else. Like, I wouldn't be able to draw on my memory at all. Um, hey, thanks so much, guys, for coming to the show. You're such a great audience. Thank you, Isaac, for being here, for asking me. Uh, we'll hang out over here. Come say hi. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Special thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios here in Berkeley. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at iChotner for information about the show. <laughs>